everyone. This is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten, where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. And now for our episode, November Remembrances, Part 2. Hey, guys, and welcome back. So, Stormy? Yeah? I joined a gym. That's right. You told me you did. I really needed to do something to get a little bit of activity. You know, I Mm -hmm. work at my desk literally all day long, and sometimes I have minimal movement in my day because I sit here for hours on end, and then Mm -hmm. for my regular job, And then I end my regular job and start on the podcast or ACCA stuff. And so I moved from my desk maybe to the couch to work on the laptop. So I don't have a lot of movement. And my metabolism is blah because that's just what happens when you get older, you know? Or in the chair, as the case may be. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm just, I don't have energy anymore like I used to. And I feel like it's probably because I don't have that like level of activity. I used to be really in shape not that long ago, actually. So I was like, all right, I loved going to the gym and then life happened. So maybe this will make me feel better and maybe I'll stop being so dang sore all the time and whatever. So good for you because like I, yeah, that's not there yet. <laughs> My husband keeps encouraging me. Okay, well, it hasn't been a full week yet, so we're going to say good job at this point <laughs> and just keep motivating and, like, stick with it. I'm determined. I'm going to stick with it Um, just because I went in and I was like, I feel like such a weakling right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't pick up, like, half the weight that I used to be able to do. Oh, I'm not even going to say half the weight. That's even giving me some credit. Well, they have an assistant machine in the back. Thank God it's in the back. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to tell you the fail that happened on that today. But then I'm like, okay, let me go over here to these dumbbells. I had to go to what felt like the grandparents section mm-hmm. because they didn't even have weights that I could lift in the young adult section is what I'm calling it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And I so said my goal now is to like work really hard. To not ever have to go to the other side of the gym unless I'm doing like ab work. Yeah, just listening to you, I'm embarrassed for myself because I probably wouldn't even be doing as well as you are. <laughs> so, even if I'm having to pick up these smaller weights, may I'll just do more repetitions in it. 
Yeah. Until I start getting some of my strength back. Mm-hmm. So, because I'm trying to keep, because I hate cardio. Mm-hmm. I don't like running. I used to love um, running. but I did too. That's actually what got me started working out was I did the Couch to 5K app. Yeah. That trained you to do a 5K. Nice. And we have what we call like, a, it's called a shamrock run every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not here, but it's close by. And was with a group of friends who are all much more athletic than I was back in the day. But I had it in my head that I was going to make it to this. It it's always happens, of course, on St. Patrick's Day. And so I was going to do this, right? Yeah. So proud of myself. Yeah. Jeff decided to join me on the sh- Shamrock Run, and he didn't run at all. Like, oh, he no. is not a runner, period. And I think both of us thought we were dead by the time we were done. <laughs> thousands of people doing this run, and I don't even know it. Probably came in thousands. <laughs> well, I don't know what know, place we came I'm in. sure. Well, you probably weren't last. No, so we, were, we weren't last. Yeah. But... Yeah, I mean, there were people who were walking. We were mostly running the whole time. Although he did get like shin splints. So that was really not good. Yeah. But I liked the color runs where they like bombed you with the powder. I have never been to one. Have you? Oh, yes. I've done a couple of those. They were really fun. I really kind of wanted to do one. Oh, they were so messy, but they were really fun. So if you haven't listened to part one of the November Remembrances, we hope you will go back and listen. There are so many heartbreaking cases all year round, but it seems like November really had a large number. So we're doing part two of our November remembrances today. And as we mentioned in part one, we have a few that we've followed for a while now, which occurred during this time of year that have etched a special place in our hearts. But even so, we believe every case is important and deserves attention and solution. The holidays are difficult on the families left behind when they have a loved one who is missing or has been murdered, but especially when their loss occurred during the holiday times. One of the cases that we're going to be talking about later, um, her son's been missing since 1998, and she had asked us if we could put something at the beginning of the episode to see if there was anybody out there, whether it's a retired law enforcement officer, um, private investigator, Somebody in that kind of that career field. field, I guess, yeah. yeah, that would be interested and willing to offer pro bono services to families like hers who are going through what they're going through and families like the families that we talk about every week mm-hmm. where their cases really aren't being progressed forward in any manner. They can't really get any kind of information from the agencies or there's really not any communication. Or maybe it's just that the case is kind of stalled out. Maybe it's not from lack of effort from the investigating agency, but maybe it's just there's not enough time or maybe they just don't know where to go. Right. You know, and then sometimes it really is. There's just that breakdown in communication and the family feels like there is more that can be done, but they just don't know where to go. And somebody like a retired law enforcement person would be ideal because they'd know how to communicate with the investigators that are holding the case, basically. But also they just know all the... Ins and outs. Ins and outs, yeah. I was trying to think of the right words, but yeah. All the the things that you need to know to get, you know, the investigation done. 
And a lot of times they've been in the, they've already, if they're retired, they've already been in that situation. They've already, they know what the case right. works like. They know what the environment's like. Mm-hmm. They know what every day coming into the office is like when they have cases piled on top of cases with a to-do yep. list that's a mile long. So they know kind of how to navigate those. The system, sort of. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I think it would be beneficial if there are people out there that would be willing to do pro bono services to help families look into these cases to kind of compile a list. And I know that even if there are, they can't do it for everybody. Um, And maybe that's why there's not a list that's out there, because it would have to be on a case by case basis. Um, It would depend on workload, obviously, for whoever's looking at it. Um, but I think, you know, a group like, you know, an organization like ours, if we could even just have those that we don't like just publicize, that we'd have resources to offer in certain, you know, in circumstances. Almost that, like a referral type yeah, thing. You know, and they may or may not be available to do it, but at least we'd have an option for families such as telesis. And even if it's like a consultation mm-hmm. where they could call and say, this is kind of what we have going on. This is the general background. What do you think? Do you think? And they might even be able to refer him to somebody else they know that would be willing to help. Right. Too. And they may be able to offer advice as far as what the family could do on their own um, to help bring in more information or push it forward or keep it moving. You know? Um, yep. We're not going to say that every case is a matter of you know, the agencies just aren't communicating. Like, we know they're busy and they can't always stop to make 100 phone calls a day. We know that a lot of the cases aren't the only case that are sitting on their desk. And, oh my gosh, we've been really busy lately and we've been kind of slow on responding to things. So I can only imagine, really, how some of the agencies feel. So we're not placing all of the blame or all of the fault on the investigators by any means. Um, but it was kind of a unique request. And because it was sent to us by one of the families, we did want to kind of pose that and say, if there is anybody listening who has worked in this area and you would be interested and willing to offer advice or review or whatever to the family members, kind of on a pro bono basis or whatever, if you wouldn't mind emailing us, um, reaching out to us, our information's on our website. We'll stick our email in the episode description. Um, so Social media. Right, our Facebook anywhere. page, wherever. So we can start kind of putting together a list so that we have that kind of resource available to give to family members. Or if you'd rather not talk to the family directly without having an idea first what's going on, um, we can shoot the information to you first. Say, hey, we've got a family like this. Is it something you'd be interested in? And then exchange contact information, whatever. Um, But I do think it would be something good to have on hand. Absolutely. And what a way to honor one of our cases that has been going on for so long. So please, if you're out there, if you're law enforcement, you know somebody who's law enforcement, retired, you know, any any private investigators, any of you. Please contact us. Remember, as you listen to the names and summaries of these cases, 
If any piece of information triggers your memory, please don't hesitate to reach out. The contact information, as always, will be in the episode description. Your help is critical in keeping their names in the public mind and supporting the ongoing efforts of these families to find a resolution for their loved ones. Stephen Ray Tucker. Our first case today is Stephen Tucker, whose case just hit the two-year mark, which is generally regarded as the threshold for when a case becomes a cold case, barring any law enforcement activity, pursuing a known suspect or leads, etc. It's generally when we start actively including these cases on our website, including the case cards on social media and in our Unforgotten episodes. Last year, we were putting together our first unsolved t-shirt, which we reserved for cold cases, and we were chatting with Stephen's sister and hoping that his case was actually one of those that never made it onto that list. But unfortunately, as is the case with far too many cases in Walker County, the case is still unsolved. Stephen was last seen on the morning of November 28, 2021, after reportedly having an argument with an unknown individual at a residence located on Robbins Road and leaving on foot. A home surveillance camera captured Stephen walking along Robbins Road between 7 and 7.30 a.m., and this is the last confirmed sighting of Stephen. It seems the video also caught him on camera possibly a bit closer to the home just a couple of minutes prior. We've posted these pictures before, and we'll share them again just for reference. This is the story as originally told, but some details have been left out or may not be completely accurate. Stephen had been living at the Robbins Road residence for about seven months from what we understand. Family had dropped him off after spending Thanksgiving with him, and it's unconfirmed about what the argument was related to, but family states he had been struggling with severe, unmedicated diabetic issues and that his behavior could have been mistaken for substance use, as Stephen had also had a history of drug use. It also seems that the argument included the roommate potentially pulling a gun on Stephen, Shortly after Stephen was seen walking on camera, it appears the roommate may have also been seen on camera leaving his residence reportedly to look for Stephen. His family isn't completely sure if the timing is correct on the footage and they believe Stephen may not have even left the home or the property. If all of this isn't suspect enough, there are also reports that the same person who was looking for Stephen later confessed to police officers that he had actually shot Stephen. But miraculously, he was released, and it appears that no charges were ever brought against him, and Stephen is still missing. There is more unconfirmed and not shareable information, but Stephen's family believes that his roommate shot and killed him, and they have searched a few possible areas that he may have been taken to afterwards, but they've had no success. Authorities have stated they've conducted a few searches, and at least one almost a year ago with dogs, none of which have had any success. And they've mentioned to Stephen's family that there were a couple of leads that didn't pan out. Stephen's family has been waiting to hear about forensic testing that may have been done, but they've received no updates. Stephen is a white male with brown hair, brown eyes, and commonly wore a beard. He's roughly 5'10 and weighed approximately 190 pounds and has numerous tattoos. At the time he was last seen and in the photos that we'll share, he was wearing a black long sleeve shirt or a black jacket and dark pants. As of 2023, he would be 39 years old. If you have any information regarding Stephen Tucker's case, please contact the Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-6464 
or the Secrets True Crime Confidential Tip Line at 205-282-0740. Hayden Mayberry 26-year-old Hayden Mayberry, a father of a less than one-year-old son, another Walker County resident that was allegedly last seen walking into a wooded area. On November 25th, 2019, Hayden was reportedly last seen in Boldo, Alabama, north of Jasper, walking into a small patch of woods less than a quarter mile away from the Pine Drive residence he was staying at with his then-girlfriend, Naomi Wilcutt, Rosa Rice, owner of the resident, Rosa's husband, and two adult children, as well as Rosa's brother-in-law. Multiple searches of the Pine Drive area were conducted with cadaver dogs in December of 2019, except that of the specific wooded area. Go figure. (laughs) In December of 2019, Walker County Sheriff's Office stated that they had three persons of interest in Hayden's disappearance. Charity Tessner, J.W. Stone, and J.W. Welsh. Rosa was also arrested in December for providing false information related to the investigation. She was held for more than five weeks before being released without bail. Two months later, on February 1st, 2020, a couple walking down Pine Drive spotted Hayden's body less than 100 feet from the road. When authorities arrived, they found Hayden lying on the ground, fully clothed, with a woman's belt around his neck. The medical examiner ruled his death suicide by probable hanging. However, Walker County Sheriff's Office stated physical evidence found at the scene gave them reason to believe that Hayden died under suspicious circumstances. And just to interrupt really quickly, um, we've talked about this um, in a previous episode when we were talking about the arrests that were made in Eric Kate's case. And we mm-hmm. mentioned that Secrets True Crime actually has a season where they did a deep dive into Eric's case. They actually have several episodes on Hayden's case, too. That's, that cr- that's right. Yeah, they very have like a informative. Yeah. And I think if you go to their YouTube, um, there may be a couple of videos, too, up on their page. I need to go to check is, that. There is, yeah. I actually saw some of those when I was looking at his information. It yeah. is definitely worth the listen. The case is all too familiar. Yes. So... If you have any information, please contact the Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-6464 or, if you prefer, Secrets True Crime Confidential Tip Line at 205-282-0740. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Lakira Pig Goldsmith Lakira Goldsmith, a 20-year-old mother of a sweet two-year-old boy and affectionately known as Pig, was last seen on November 28, 2018. 
On Tuesday, November 27th, a few days after Thanksgiving, Lakira had a date with her boyfriend. He picked her up at her grandmother's apartment on Narrow Lane Road, and they headed out for the night. In the early morning hours of Wednesday, November 28th, Lakira's grandmother saw Lakira arriving home, getting out of the car, and then her grandmother went back to bed. A maintenance man at the apartment complex told her family that he let her use his phone at 2 a.m. and that he left her to make the call outside. When he came back, the phone was on the steps and Lakira was gone. There are some reports that say she was talking with a friend or a boyfriend outside, but this hasn't been confirmed. It's been over five years and no one has seen or heard from Lakira, and her social media accounts have gone dark. Montgomery Police Department has repeatedly declined to share any information publicly or with the family, stating they can't comment on active cases. Lakira's family has worked actively, tirelessly, and continuously to keep her case in the media and on social media, but she is still missing after five years. Lakira is a black female, roughly 5'4 to 5'5, and weighing approximately 150 pounds when she disappeared. When she was last seen, she had dark hair roots with blonde extensions and was wearing a black velvet knee-length dress, a silver rhinestone choker necklace, silver rhinestone earrings, and a silver lip ring. She also has a snake eye tongue piercing. Lakira has severe asthma and did not have her medication with her. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Lakira Goldsmith, you can contact Crime Stoppers at 888-999-3870 or the Montgomery Police Department at 334-625-2810. You can also submit an anonymous tip through the Crime Stoppers website, which will be linked in the episode details. Ryan King and John Lowe. On November 30th, 2015, about 8 p.m., Ryan King and his stepfather, John Lowe Jr., were in the yard of their Alpine home on Oakdale Road when an unknown person approached them and asked for directions. Tina Lowe, John's wife and Ryan's mother, was inside the home but heard them giving the person directions. Witnesses say several moments later, they heard gunshots and the person fled the scene on foot. Tina found Ryan and John laying in the yard with gunshot wounds. Ryan was pronounced dead at the scene and John was taken to Coosa Valley Medical Center where he was then pronounced dead at the hospital. Neighbors have said that they heard gunshots, but it wasn't that unusual to hear in that area. The Talladega Sheriff's Office stated they had completed many interviews, but in February of 2023, a witness did come forward with information regarding a light-skinned black male seen in the area just prior to the murders. But since then, again, no information has been developed. There is currently $22,500 in reward money available to someone who provides information that leads to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for these murders. And that comes from $5,000 from the Alabama Governor's Office, $5,000 from the Talladega Sheriff's Office, $5,000 from Central Alabama Crime Stoppers, $5,000 from Ryan King's dad, and a generous private donor also came forward to offer $2,500. And that is just like some collaboration there to it really offer is. to try to get this solved. That's that's just amazing. I wish all agencies would kind of come together like that. I mean, 
We I talk do. about this all the time about whether or not rewards actually do lead to information being received, but it's hard to argue against it mm-hmm. because if you don't put it out there, then you'll always wonder what would have happened if you had. True. And I think it shows the family some solidarity as well. Yeah, right, right. Like we're willing to do what needs to be done to try to get this solved. Yeah. And so I think it is, it's just really kind of supportive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put their money where their mouth is, so to say. Eight years later, Talladega County Sheriff's Office has not yet received the information that will allow them to make any arrests in their case. If you have any information regarding the murders of Ryan King and John Lowe, please contact the Talladega County Sheriff's Office at 256-761-2141, Crime Stoppers at 334-215-7867, Secrets to Crime Confidential Tip Line at 205-282-0740, or you can submit an anonymous tip on their website. James Jimmy Chapman. 75-year-old Jimmy Chapman was found deceased at the intersection of Rosa L. Parks Avenue and Fleming Road in Montgomery on November 29, 2015. Jimmy had been out running an errand to make a sale for a friend, an inexpensive rifle being sold for $50. He pulled into the parking lot of a business off of Rosa L. Parks Avenue and was shot as soon as he stepped out of the vehicle, leading Montgomery police to believe his death was the result of a robbery. A report by the Montgomery Advertiser stated eight people were shot that holiday weekend, beginning on Thanksgiving Day, and six of the victims suffered fatal injuries. In May of 2016, Jimmy's family put up a $1,000 reward, and Alabama Central Crime Stoppers matched that in 2017. But eight years after his death, his case remains unsolved. If you have any information, please contact Montgomery Police Department at 334 241 2651 through their secret witness line at 334-625-4000 or call Central Crime Stoppers at 334-215-7867 or submit an anonymous tip on their website. Angel Moore, 11 years ago, November 30th, 2012, 26-year-old Angel Moore, a mother of a nine-year-old daughter at the time, was found deceased in her Theodore, Alabama home. It was a shock to everyone, including neighbors, who had seen Angel the day before and said nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Mobile Police Department called Angel's death suspicious, but that's the extent of the information that they released. In an interview on December 9th of 2012 with local media outlet Fox 10, Angel's mother, Linda Dickens, said that she had neither been told how her daughter died, nor had she received the autopsy report. When Angel's family did finally receive the autopsy report, it gave more questions than answers. Angel's sister, Crystal Dickens, has stated on social media that the autopsy revealed that Angel was beaten to death. Her family is still searching for the person responsible, and little to no information has been made available. We did try to obtain a copy of the autopsy report in June of 2022. On September 29th of 2022, we received notice back from DFS declining to provide us with the report, citing that the case was still under criminal investigation and not available to the public. 
If you have any information at all, please contact Mobile Police Department at 251-208-1700 or submit an anonymous tip at their website. Mont Holly IV. If you've kept up with our social media and episodes, you know that we have a special place in our hearts for Dr. Mont and Miss Gail Holly, as well as their daughters, and the murder of their son and brother, Mont Holly IV. November 28, 2003, brings us to Mont's 20th year since he was found murdered, and it has been a long, hard struggle looking for answers. 33 year old Mont spent the day after Thanksgiving, November 28, 2003, with his parents at their Montgomery home. Around 5 to 5.30 p.m., Mont left their Montgomery home and headed to the family hunting camp located on County Road 30 in Shorter, Alabama, with plans for his father to join him the next day. When Dr. Holly arrived at the camp on Saturday, he found the door to the camp unlocked and the lights, along with the television, turned on. However, Mont nor his Tahoe were present. Although odd, Dr. Holly assumed Mont went to watch the football game that night which was Alabama versus Hawaii, with a friend. So he switched off the TV, locked up the camp, and left. On Sunday, November 30th, the Hollies received a call that Mont's 1996 Green Tahoe had been found parked at another family's camp, also located on County Road 30, approximately two and a half miles away from the Hollies' camp. The Hollies received a call from Dale Seacrest that Mont's 1996 Green Tahoe had been found parked at their family camp, which was also located on County Road 30, approximately two and a half miles away from the Holly Camp. Upon arrival at the Seacrest Camp, the Hollies found Mont's Tahoe with the keys still inside, along with his wallet that still had money inside. The Hollies returned to their camp and noticed things that Dr. Holly had not noticed before, such as wet boots on the front porch and Mont's new pants still damp from the upper thigh down in the bedroom, with his phone still in the pocket. During a multiple-day search of the Hollies' almost 300-acre property, which involved multiple law enforcement agencies and over 200 volunteers, the family's golf cart was discovered a little further away from the mobile home and slightly stuck on a tree root. Mont's shirt and other various personal belongings were scattered in the same general area. Around 10.30 a.m. on January 14, 2004, Mont's body was located in a grain silo, approximately two miles from the family hunting camp and about a half mile from the Seagrass camp where his truck was abandoned. We produced a three-part series on Mont's case, Unforgotten, episode 26. We encourage you to listen to hear about the investigation and the family's pursuit to obtain answers and hope of an arrest. If you have any information, please contact the Alabama State Bureau of Investigation at 334-676-7870. The SBI Crime Hotline, 800-392-8011, or submit an anonymous tip on their website. Another case for which we have been fortunate enough to get to know a wonderful woman, tell us, through horrible circumstances that took place on this day. Tomorrow, for those getting the early release, that is. Tell us had shared the unimaginable loss of her son, George Eric James, who we featured in episode 11 of Unforgotten. And he has been missing for 25 years as of November 23rd. George Eric James, a 22-year-old from Millbrook, Alabama, left his parents' home in a small red car on November 23rd of 1998 
after suddenly picking a small and confusing argument with his mom. He had gathered all the possessions he had still kept there at her house and stormed out, leaving his mother stunned as she tried to persuade him to stay and talk to her. They never saw him again. George reportedly had a large unconfirmed amount of money between $6,000 and $14,000 with him when he left. There were rumors of where he may have been seen after he left. However, the last confirmed sighting was from a store clerk who saw George make a call at a public payphone from the convenience store near Evergreen Exit, about 80 miles south of Millbrook. About four months after his disappearance, George's abandoned car was located with a blown motor on Interstate 65, also near Evergreen, Alabama. The car was towed, but later, a class at Auburn University working on cold cases revealed that the car was never searched, but rather taken somewhere to be crushed. His family has many frustrations with how the investigation of his disappearance has been handled, but they've never stopped searching for answers. Despite George's criminal record and known gang affiliations, it was said that he was trying to get away from that life. Potential witnesses have said the money he was carrying had been given to him from a married girlfriend to start a new life. He was also rumored to have left with someone named Robin to start a new life in Florida or Mobile, Alabama. He was known to work in construction in both areas. Many rumors are out there about why and how he may have been murdered. And currently, no one has been able to provide definitive information regarding his disappearance. Tellus believes there are a few people who know what happened, but are unwilling to talk for fear of safety. Tillis had to wade through 17 investigators in this case. It's nearly unfathomable to think that every time one of them gets close to a new clue or possible person's interest, the case is reassigned or the person is retired or let go. We've shared many frustrations on social media about this. We encourage you to check out our posts, but we also hope you will listen to our unforgotten episode number 11 on George. George is a six foot one tall white male with blue eyes and brown hair. He weighed approximately 170 pounds at the time he disappeared. He has a few tattoos, a lighthouse on his chest, a skull on his right neck, the word brick on his right arm, and the name Robin on the underside of his right forearm. If you know anything about George's disappearance or whereabouts, please contact the Montgomery Police Department at 334-241-2651. In Unforgotten, Episode 27, we recounted Dina Ann Hubbard's case from Madison County, which occurred 36 years ago today, or tomorrow for subscribers who are listening early. We've been waiting on a bit more information before sharing an update, and while we don't have all of the information just yet, we've been fortunate enough to be able to talk to Dina's brother and his wife, and hopefully we'll have a little bit more information to share soon on a future episode. In the early morning hours of November 24, 1987, a motorist traveling along U.S. Highway 431 in Big Cove stumbled upon a grim discovery. A lifeless body sprawled on the roadway and immediately contacted authorities. When the officials arrived on the scene, a disturbing sight awaited them. The lifeless, unclothed body of 23-year-old Dina Ann Hubbard, a victim of a seemingly heartless hit-and-run. 
Media reports from that period revealed that Dina had last been seen leaving her uncle's residence on Miller Lane at approximately 7 p.m., just about a mile north of the accident scene. She was described as wearing a tan jacket, a white blouse, and dark pants. In the update that we were given, we were provided a little more insight to the timing of where she was and when she may have left her uncle's. We believe it was a little bit later in the evening than 7 p.m. According to the accident report, investigators suspected the incident had occurred around 11.30 p.m. on November 23rd. Later, they informed the press that the vehicle involved was possibly an 18-wheeler complete with a white cab and trailer. At least one witness had reported spotting a vehicle fitting that exact description parked on the roadside in the same vicinity and around the same time as the accident. However, what initially appeared to be a hit and run took a turn as the investigation unfolded leading authorities to believe that Dina had met a tragic end at the hands of a murderer. Dina's injuries were so severe that it took over eight hours for authorities to confirm her identity. A brown purse and paper towels were found approximately 80 feet from the initial point of impact. Two different knife cases, each containing fixed blade knives, were discovered at the scene, yet neither the cases nor the knives appeared to bear any traces of bloodstains. There are no reference in any of the reports to any of Dina's clothing being found at or near the scene at any point. A year later, the Madison County DA's office took a significant step submitting a proclamation request to Governor Hunt's office, asserting that all available evidence pointed to homicide as the manner and cause of Dina's death. However, despite exhaustive efforts, no suspects had been identified, and all leads had seemingly run cold. In response, Governor Hunt's office issued a $10,000 reward for any information that could lead to the apprehension and conviction of the person or persons responsible for this heinous act. Regrettably, it appears Dina's case remains unsolved, as no one has ever been charged or publicly identified as a person of interest in connection with her tragic death. If you have any information, please contact Madison County DA's office at 256 532 3460. Madison County Sheriff's Office at 256-533-8820 or Alabama SBI at 800-392-8011. You can also submit an anonymous tip at either the Madison County Sheriff's Office website or the Alabama SBI. William Charles Pete Fikes. Pete Fikes was last seen the morning of November 29, 1976. He spent the night of November 28th with his grandmother in Jasper and left the following morning in his father's 1972 Plymouth Valiant and headed back to his home in Burroughs Crossing. It's unknown whether Pete ever made it back to his home, but he was not there that afternoon when his parents stopped by. What we found in the media reports after his disappearance was just kind of bizarre. When his parents didn't hear from him, Pete's father, William, began to drive various Walker County roads looking for him, worried that he may have been involved in an accident due to icy roads. After three days of searching and no word from Pete, William reported his son missing to Jasper Police Department and Walker County Sheriff's Office. On February 24, 1977, Jasper PD Major George Guthrie located a bill of sale for the Plymouth Valiant in title records at the Jefferson County Probate Office. It had been signed and dated November 30th of 1976. 
The buyer was a man from Cahaba Heights who told investigators that he bought the car from three men for $200. Those men were taken into custody for questioning. One of the men, James Arthur Gregg, was identified as the man who'd forged the signature on the bill of sale. He was arrested and indicted for forgery and buying, receiving, and concealing stolen property. It was also reported dried blood was found inside the car. Searches of the Walker County area were conducted by volunteers and law enforcement, but failed to turn up any sign of Pete. However, on September 14th of 1980, a man walking near a Sipsy dump site discovered a partial human skull. Authorities identified the skull as belonging to Pete on November 11th of 1980. It was reported state toxologists had identified the skull by matching it with earlier hospital x-rays taken of skull fractures Pete had received in a car accident previously. Even more surprisingly, toxologists reported finding a blood sample in the fracture found on the skull that they believed would match the blood found in the car. We found this a little bit astonishing that they could find that trace of blood in that small amount after so much time. In 1982, Perry Mixon was arrested and charged with robbery murder in connection with Pete's disappearance and death, but it does not appear that he's ever stood trial on these charges. To hear our discussion on the many odd details of this case, please listen in to our unforgotten episode number eight. 47 years later, 47. Pete's death is still unsolved. If you have any information about the disappearance and murder of Pete so that they can bring his family some answers, finally, please contact the Alabama SBI Crime Hotline at 1-800-392-8011. Thank you for joining us again and for helping to bring awareness to these cases that need your help. Please continue to share these cases and help unearth the answers and bring justice for these families. And as always, one last reminder that all the contact information for the cases we've shared in this episode will be in the episode details. And in addition to that information, you may also contact us at our website or via email. Please come forward if you're able to help. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. 
Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.